Well, hello and welcome again to the latest episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly Podcast, uh, where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of dealmaking and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week? Doing very well, Eric. How are you? Good, good. So fundraising is the uh, the theme of the week here. We've got a, a number of uh, you know, really prominent fundraisings, uh, potential initial public offerings, private capital raisings. Uh, you know, Despite the pandemic, uh, a lot of money continues to flow in and around the sports and entertainment landscape. We're going to get into that shortly here. But first, we're going to start with our uh, featured guest interview this week. And we've got Mike D from Odyssey. He is, uh, this is the uh, audio company and radio station ownership group that previously was Entercom and just went through a rebranding, and which we'll get into in, in quite a bit of detail. And uh, listeners of the podcast might particularly remember Mike from his extensive run as a senior team executive in U.S. Pro Sports, uh, had top positions with the San Diego Padres, Miami Dolphins, and Boston Red Sox. And Mike's one of the good guys of the industry and a real veteran of the space, so we had a chance to spend some time with him. So stick around for that interview, and Chris and I will be back with you on the other side of that to get into some of the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly is our guest this week, Mike D., President of Sports for Odyssey, the prominent Pennsylvania-based multi-platform audio company, one of the largest radio broadcasting groups in the country, recently rebranded from its prior entity as Entercom as it increasingly expands into digital audio, podcasting, data and analytics, and other areas. D, with the company since 2017, leads Odyssey's sport business enterprise with a focus on the relationships with its portfolio professional and collegiate teams. He previously held several senior-level pro team executive positions, including president and chief executive of Major League Baseball San Diego Padres, the same role for the National Football League's Miami Dolphins, and chief operating officer for Major League Baseball's Boston Red Sox. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to be with you guys. So let's uh, start with the kind of immediate news here, the big rebranding. A lot of folks were very familiar with the Intercom name and, you know, it was a big thing in the industry for a long while here. What was the rationale and the process of doing this rebrand odyssey? Yeah, there were several driving forces. You know, the name Intercom was 53 years young, as we say. It was uh, had been with the company since the inception of the company and along the way had taken on different forms as new radio groups were acquired and added. And then more recently with the merger with CBS radio back in 2017, that precipitated the launch of the radio.com digital platform and digital app. So we found ourselves really with two brands, Entercom, which was a more of a B2B brand, if you will, and Radio.com, which was more of our consumer-focused digital brand. So the goal was to consolidate those into one master brand that served all of those purposes. And the name Odyssey, obviously our, our ticker symbol, new, uh, new stock symbol is AUD, uh, pretty good for an audio company. Really is, I think, reflects where the company has grown, as you said in your preamble, uh, to more of a multi-platform, respecting our radio heritage and lineage 
but also with an eye on all the new digital businesses and direct-to-consumer digital space that we now play in. So we're very enthusiastic and pleased so far with the initial reaction. How would you sort of, within that broader ecosystem, how would you sort of describe Odyssey Sports and what would be sort of that component within the larger company? Yeah, Odyssey Sports is really built first and foremost on the backs of our 35 owned and operated locally programmed leading broadcast radio stations around the country, iconic stations like WFAN in New York and WIP in Philadelphia, just to name a few. And then, you know, we've expanded that with a lot of digital, original digital content to augment that broadcast strength. We reach 30 million listeners per month with the top of the funnel broadcast platform. And as we've expanded our digital content coming, coming down mid funnel, and then eventually with our direct-to-consumer offering with the BetQL digital app, now we're very micro-focused in the sports betting space. So, you know, it's a multifaceted approach, one that leans on, again, that big base of broadcast listeners, but is now branching off into more specialized content on our various digital platforms. For you as a longtime team guy, what was... um the interest for you from a personal and career development standpoint, getting involved in this opportunity, it's a bit of a shift for you and has been yes, a few years. Yes, it was. You know, it was exciting to me. I had a longstanding relationship with our chairman and CEO, David Field, from our days back in Boston. Uh, we own WEEI, the flagship rights holder of the Red Sox, and later iterations of that in, in Miami and San Diego with stations that Entercom owns that now are home to the Dolphins and the Padres. So knew of the company, very familiar with it, and really liked the vision that David had for where he wanted to take this traditional radio company. There's never been a better time for audio, audio consumption is dramatically increasing uh, year over year for the last decade. The advent of podcasting and on-demand listening has added to, to that. People are on the go and mobility is king uh, and will be again after the pandemic winds down, hopefully soon. So being able to consume content while uh, on the go uh, lends itself to audio and audio expansion and you know, we, I just thought it was a, a great space to be in and really attracted me after a, you know, very, a good run in team sports, but this was new and different and, and, and one that I've never looked back. I, I enjoy the business. It's a vibrant dynamic. And uh, I think the, our best years in the audio space are ahead of us. So these, the sports program, programming on audio on odyssey you've obviously got a lot of these flagship stations as you mentioned and team rights but building upon that where do you see that in, entire sports uh, programming portfolio going well it's evolving for sure i mean you know sports betting has changed the the way that most media companies and sports approach the space and you know since 2018 um you know we've been uh, fortunate to be on the leading edge of a lot of uh, both partnership and content development in the sports betting space and have terrific partners with the likes of FanDuel and BetMGM and and Rush Street Interactive to name a few that has been um and will continue to be a great uh, source of future growth as more states legalize here over the next decade and Gradually, sports betting will become even more integrated into 
what was traditionally known as mainstream content. Sports talk and, and fan engagement will always be at the center of what we do. And you know, we pride ourselves on uh, being very local in that respect. So, you know, the sports radio heritage that I mentioned earlier, we feel like we have uh, as close a connection to local fan bases and the major markets where we operate. And some of that is based on the relationships that we have for play-by-play with our 40 plus, you know, play-by-play teams that we have on our airwaves. But, you know, in many cases, we don't have the play-by-play rights for a particular team, but their fans love to hang out and talk about that team on our all sports station. So, you know, we are the voice of the fan. A lot of our, our brands uh, on these stations are the fan. So uh, the, the name fits. I think the, the future, you know, will continue to grow in the social media space, integrating more editorial content, more direct-to-consumer offerings, things like the BeckQL app that we now own and operate. And more importantly, I think major partnership opportunities for brands that want to align with sports fans is really kind of where we are most focused. So you've mentioned uh, QL uh, a couple of times here. This is a direct-to-consumer sports data, iGaming. If you sort of go into a little bit more detail as to what that is specifically, and again, how that sort of fits into this broader strategy. You know, our interest in the space really started at a higher level, which is we, we want to, you know, as a company, have an initiative to get more into direct-to-consumer uh, businesses. And we thought sports betting was a logical place to start, given our leadership position. We looked at a variety of different options and opportunities to do that, including building our own. At the end of the day, we we love the technology behind the QL Gaming Group. You know, their their brand mission is to, uh, quote unquote, make better betters, if you will, play on words. And um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, either folks that don't bet a lot or, are intimidated by not understanding, you know, how to make picks or, you know, how point spreads work or how teasers or parlays work. So the BeckQL um, app is really a, a full form app in that, you know, it, it appeals to casual betters, sort of, you know, a, an instructional uh, sort of platform, as well as having data and analytics for hardcore betters who can rely on, on those uh, statistics and analytics to make better selections. And, you know, it's a perfect companion for us to offer to our sports book partners, advertising partners. You know, we want it to be unique and different, not just another media company that sold ads to whoever showed up with a check. You know, we sell advertising and we'll continue to do that. But I think the acquisition of the QL Gaming Group and the connection of that that, that brings to, you know, consumers and, and future betters is something that early on has really resonated with the likes of, you know, the FanDuel's and BetMGM's and BetRivers. And I think we're going to continue to see that. As more states legalize, we think that the BetQL app will be a key driver early on into cultivating those new markets and new states and familiarizing, um, you know, a new audience toward uh, betting and, and, and the uh, expertise that goes into it. So you, you mentioned a number of your betting partners here, uh, FanDuel, uh, Rush Street. You've got a new relationship now with BetMGM. How are you sort of navigating all of this and, and giving enough rights to all these various entities to keep them happy and being able to expand the space here? You've got a, a lot of folks to keep happy here. Yeah, I think it speaks, Eric, to the, to the depth and breadth of our content. 
you know, we have uh, obviously these multi-platform opportunities and, and from local talent endorsement to custom content opportunities to, you know, digital podcasts. You know, as an example, we have a podcast called You Better, You Bet, hosted by Nick Costos, which we launched in 2019. It's, I think, ranks, you know, number one most weeks uh, in terms of fully dedicated sports betting podcasts uh, on the iTunes chart, you know, 600 plus thousand downloads a month. So, you know, those are new opportunities that we'll continue to expand upon. We just recently announced the creation of the BetQL audio network, which will be a 24-7 long-form network, which will be housed on our digital platforms. But we've also started to convert radio stations and legalize markets around the country under the brand The Bet. And those stations will become BetQL audio network affiliates. So I think it's incumbent upon us to continue to expand the content, work with our partners in a collaborative way to incorporate you know, content onto our various platforms that listeners and our audience will gravitate toward, you know, if, whether you bet or not. You know, we have a term that we've coined called wagertainment. And you know, if you're talking about betting, you shouldn't turn off an audience that may not bet, but still may find the content and the conversation compelling and appealing. And, um, and that's really the trick to the trade. So I think all of our partners are, are very happy. We've created swim lanes for everybody and we'll continue to manage that process as we move forward. So your counterparts in the television space, it's been a somewhat difficult line for them to walk in terms of taking full advantage of this emerging betting space here in the United States, but also um, not having it be overwhelming for a general audience here. How are you sort of managing that line by being able to sort of take advantage of these opportunities, but not having just a general sports fan constantly be hit over the head with betting content? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, it speaks to the balance that I just mentioned. I think, you know, you, ha- you have to make the content interesting. If, if somebody turns on a sports station and all they're hearing is, you know, they're a seven point favorite or four point underdog without any explanation or context, I think we would talk more about why that team is a seven point favorite or four point underdog. And, you know, in the course of doing that, if you have an interest in that game or in that team, the data and the analytics that we'll provide will serve a dual purpose, not just for those who may have an interest in placing a wager on the event, but those who are interested in the outcome of the event or watching the event in a, in a different way. So it is a challenge. I think it, it may be more challenging for television because there's a visual representation as well that may you know, be in the face of the, uh, of the viewer. I think there are ways in audio to do it in a more subtle, integrated way that is additive to an audience, not, not uh, um, you know, cannibalizing an audience who may not be interested in, the, in a particular uh, betting uh, angle. Now, these deals, from a general construct, as you're working with each of these entities, are they generally just straight up rights fees kinds of things, or are there different structures, equity sharing, that kind of thing? Or how are you sort of broadly structuring these deals? They're different shapes and sizes. You know, FanDuel is our official sports book of, of Odyssey Sports, so it's a non-exclusive but an official status. So they have you know access to first look opportunities, both talent and content, and you know, in terms of the, the volume of participation, they, they are um, significantly uh, more invested in our platforms uh, than other partners. But, 
you know, BetMGM and BetRiver is both very significant partners. I know they view us as a, a significant partner in their world. And there are, you know, uh, traditional advertising elements with BetQL. There are affiliate fee relationships, so leads that we and special offers that they provide to BetQL users, you know, a free $500 bet if you sign up through BetQL. You know, there's a, a, a an activation fee and an affiliate fee relationship there, and you know other ways. Uh, we, we do not own equity in any of the sports book like some of the other media partners have done, and I don't anticipate that we'll do that. Um, that's not kind of in our our strategy at this point. But really focus more on a partnership and aligning interests around content and personalities. Wanted to talk a little bit about Locked On Sports and your relationship there. And obviously, Tegna's got uh, some participation in that as well. Um, how do you see that entity evolving and what's the intersection between Odyssey now and Tegna? Yeah, you know, the Locked On folks, it's a new relationship, you know, multifaceted from uh, both a sales perspective and representing uh, them and in, in advertising channels, but also, uh, you know, co- co-production on uh, content and, and opportunities and you know, early on, I think there's uh, the results are very positive. Enjoyed getting to know them. They've obviously uh, pre-Tegna acquisition. You know, the locked on folks to build an incredible business with a you know very significant traffic and a huge following. And you know, they they fit with what we do because you know they're local and they they have you know connections to teams and markets through the podcast channels that we have through our radio stations. So on the surface, there's great alignment and, you know, the relationship is only a few months old, but so far so good. And, and hopefully we look forward to a long, uh, long future together. So as we're taping this, it's it's opening day for the 2021 Major League Baseball season. Uh, you know, one of the great days in the American sports calendar and obviously a big one for your company, given your various MLB team relationships. But it also sort of uh, the first quarter is now done and we're on to uh, the uh, latter chunk of the year here. Um, as we look ahead and now that this rebranding is done, what should we and our, our listeners be on the lookout for from Odyssey? I think uh, executing what we do well and continuing to invest in content and talent, you know, if, if you're not entertaining and appealing for your listeners, then, you know, you've got issues. So we, we spend a lot of time on, on talent and talent development, on developing content that continues to be compelling and attract our audience, whether that be play-by-play across any of the major sports or the talk around play-by-play. I think you'll see us build out more digital product expand upon the BetQL audio network pretty significantly between now and the kickoff of football in 2021. I think as, you know, the pandemic world starts to normalize, hopefully, and we get back to some state of of a pre-pandemic level uh, event uh, activity, I think you'll see us be, you know, inside of sports books, hosting shows on location at uh, sporting venues around the country in a much more significant way as fans start to migrate back uh, into stadiums and ballparks and buildings. And I think lastly, I think you'll see us continue to double down, you know, in direct to consumer activity, you know, through subscriptions and through ways that we can, you know, interact and engage our fan base in ways that make sense. Um, So far, the BetQL experiment has gone extremely well. Uh, The numbers since the acquisition, given the amount of exposure that they've had across our our various platforms has been outstanding. And I think, 
you know, we'll look for more of those opportunities as well, whether it be in the podcast space. We haven't talked about podcasting, but Entercom has, uh, you know, become before the Odyssey transition, the number two podcaster in the country with the acquisition of Cadence 13 and Pineapple Street Studios, uh, doing a lot of original content with partners like Netflix and HBO and others. And I think you'll you'll see us start to spread our wings uh, a little bit more in the sports space along those lines as well. Well, it's a fascinating space and obviously one that just undergoing through a, a lot of transformation and evolution here. And we really want to thank Mike D from Odyssey Sports for coming on the Sport Business Finance Weekly podcast and, and spending some time with us. Great. I appreciate it, Eric and Chris. Nice being with you in any time. Thank you. All right. Thanks. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Mike D from Odyssey again for spending some time with us here. And getting into some of the news of the week here, uh, we mentioned at the top that this was going to be a fundraising-heavy discussion here, and, and starting with perhaps the, the biggest news here, Endeavor, after 18 months, is trying it again on an initial public offering they had tried to go down this road. This is the uh, sports and entertainment conglomerate that owns WME and the IMG agencies has had half of uh, the Ultimate Fighting Championship and a number of other assets. They pulled this IPO in the fall of 2019 at the last minute amid a then very choppy financial market, and they had downgraded their the size of the offering. They had downgraded the share price, and there was just a lot of swirl and turbulence, and then the pandemic hit, and they had to lay off a bunch of people, and their senior executives had substantial or total pay cuts, and it was just a big mess there for a while. But a year and a half now has passed, and even though a lot of issues are still remaining with this company and they're still losing money, there's so much money, investor money flowing into the space right now, as we've discussed in prior episodes, it just, it almost seemed inevitable that they were going to try this again. And the interesting wrinkle as part of this is not only do they want to do a public offering again, but they also are raising almost $1.8 billion in a private placement most of which will be used to uh, fund the purchase of the other half of USC that they don't already own. So within that whole landscape here, there's just a lot going on here. I I guess first off for you, Chris, what you're sort of making of this whole situation here and why go through all of this difficulty when there's so much SPAC money and some other alternatives that were probably out there for them, why go through all of this difficulty and scrutiny all over again? Well, uh, you know, a year and a half, uh, a lot can happen in that period of time, yes. and a lot has happened in, in a year and a half, both for the good and for the, the not so good. But fortunately for Endeavor, the markets appear robust. The pandemic appears to be coming to an end. Sports appears to be gaining some further momentum. So those dynamics are really good. I think the other thing that is is important is for Endeavor, a public company status will give it the capital and give it the currency to go make further acquisitions and to continue to grow and to compete with other companies out in the M&A marketplace who are going to be rolling up companies. So I think it's important from that perspective that they take advantage of this opportunity and uh, and, and really when the market is is hot, make uh, you know make the most of it. 
Well, and to your point about uh, having that status as a public company, uh, Ari Emanuel, the co-chief executive of Endeavor, he, in the preliminary perspective, sort of spoke to this, that they thought that being publicly traded would sort of help accelerate their trajectory and get into some new opportunities and some new markets. So it sounds like you sort of agree with that broad thesis. I do. And I think the the SPAC trend that we've been talking about also plays into this. First of all, in terms of why would they do a SPAC or not do a SPAC, uh, I don't know their particular thinking, but typically companies that can go public on their own or are ready to go public on, on their own don't necessarily need to pay all of the consideration to the SPAC sponsors. Whether that was the, the key factor here or not, I'm not sure. But, but one reason that someone would avoid the SPAC world and simply go public is then you don't have to pay the consideration to the sponsors. Now, another way the SPAC frenzy plays into this is there are a lot of sports and media SPACs out there that assuming they get deals done, that wouldn't be the end of it. Those sports and media SPACs would then want to buy other things. And if you don't have your own public currency to compete with them, you're going to put yourself at a disadvantage in terms of buying up future assets. So that could have also been part of the thinking behind this. Sure. Now, in the UFC piece of this, in terms of going from a half owner of UFC to full owner, that's a real interesting thing because the agency space, uh, that obviously comes and goes. It's incredibly competitive, cutthroat, you might even want to say. But UFC, particularly during this pandemic, they were they were growing before, but they really you know, sort of flexed even further during this pandemic. They were able to do the the Fight Island events out in Abu Dhabi. They were able to uh, sort of keep going uh, when a lot of the traditional stick and ball sports were having disruptions of various sorts. Just did a big deal with uh, DraftKings to enhance its uh, uh, placement in the emerging U.S. betting space. And obviously have got a young rabbit following here. So and UFC, again, doesn't have the kind of labor issues that a traditional stick and ball property has uh, here in the U.S. Uh, so it seems to at least whatever happens to them as a public company, having this entity as an anchor in their portfolio would seem to be really important to them. Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's a strong property and has those characteristics that you mentioned. I think what's also important to remember about Endeavor, and you you covered or, or touched on some of it, is you know Endeavor incorporates a number of different businesses, a representation business, an owned property business, UFC, PBR, others. They've got yep. a, a, a foothold in the wagering business through IMG Arena. They, uh, they also have an, a number of other production businesses. And so it, it really is a diversified group of companies. And add to that, they bought on location, NFL on location That's right. uh, in January of last year, right before the pandemic. So again, some of these businesses, I'm, I'm sure did extremely well during the pandemic. Some did not do as well. And so having strength across the board, I think is important to them. Yeah, and looking ahead, uh, you know that on location piece—they've really cornered the uh, the resale market and the hospitality market for Super Bowl tickets. And obviously, this year in Tampa was a little bit different, given all of the obvious pandemic-related circumstances. But the next Super Bowl is in Los Angeles, and that could just be one of the Super Bowls, all and all Super Bowls that, that, given the fan interest and the corporate interest in that event, after what we've been through over the past year, just that business alone is going to be going gangbusters. Yeah, yeah, there really should be a nice rebound in that business 
for some of the events that you mentioned, and, and also because On Location has such a dominant position in the marketplace, uh, they had merged and they had kind of rolled up a number of the other kind of key companies in the space a couple of years ago before Endeavor made the purchase. And so they really do have a leadership position in that space. And we certainly hope and assume that uh, people will go be going back to events and, and be going back to high profile events. So they're in a good position as, as the economy rebounds. Now, the other interesting piece of uh, news that came out of this preliminary uh, prospectus for the Endeavor IPO is that Elon Musk has uh, been uh, nominated to go on to their board of directors. Now, this is uh, you know one of the most prominent entrepreneurs in all of American business, Tesla, SpaceX, a number of other businesses, but he's also gotten into some hot water. He's said and tweeted some things that have literally gotten him into trouble with the SEC, and he's paid fines, and he's uh, been penalized, and um, you know, sort of a lightning rod figure that for all of his accomplishment and, and track record, of success, uh, you know, can be a polarizing presence here. So it was an interesting name to show up in that document. Yeah, I am. I'm a big Elon Musk fan on a personal level. I don't know exactly how he fits into this story. I haven't read the entire prospectus and haven't gotten a full uh, download on that. But he certainly is a, uh, a a very interesting person, a brilliant person in many respects. And it'll be it'd be very intriguing to see how he is positioned as part of that overall story. Yeah, and and given that this, and I have read through the document, and given that it was just a preliminary one, it didn't really say very much. It just said that he's a very sort of generic, that he's got a lot of interest, a lot of experience starting and growing and building businesses, which is all obviously true, but that's just very sort of basic. So once, uh, Endeavor comes back with a more detailed perspective with obviously the specific details of what they want to do with the IPO, which we're still waiting on. Perhaps we'll also hear more about what the, the plans are specifically in and around Elon Musk. Here. Yeah. But, uh, a very interesting story to watch for sure. And, and maybe we'll hear from Elon too. So that, that, that'll be interesting uh, as well. Indeed. So sh- shifting gears, another big fundraising of the week, uh, sort of moving from the traditional sports world into one that is very emerging here, Dapper Labs. This is a uh, Canadian-based uh, developer of NBA Top Shot, and uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with NBA Top Shot, some may not be, but this gets into the whole sort of uh, blockchain virtual trading card space, and more specifically, the exploding realm of non-fungible tokens, otherwise called NFTs. Now, some of our listeners may have also seen the uh, great Saturday Night Live skit from a week ago where they sort of got into this and sort of, uh, you know, what the hell is an NFT and sort of broke it down in their usual humorous style here. But this is this is a this is a digital good, a virtual good. You know, in very a uh, lot of instances comes with video content. Um, it has some unique properties. And then over the last uh, month or two here, the uh, not only in sports, but uh, across a number of genres have just absolutely exploded in popularity and not just as a fan engagement thing, but as an investment thing. And people are flipping these things for very serious money. And some of these things are literally going for tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars, given the uniqueness and scarcity of these digital products. So this company, Dapper Labs, that makes NBA Top Shot, they raised $305 million um, and they want to sort of take that NBA licensing model and bring into a whole bunch of other sports. And so we're, you know, you know, MLB top shot or NFL top shot or whatever it may be. And obviously the names will change, but uh, you know, the idea is to sort of take that digital licensing component and bring it to other properties here. So, you know, 
both of us are of a certain age and certainly did not uh, yeah. grow up with this sort of thing. But I guess sort of the first obvious question is, uh, what what are you making of this whole NFT space? And is it sort of the, a passing fad or do you think this is here to stay? It's it's exciting. I mean, I think from what I'm reading, there's been more than $500 million of sales in the NBA product in the first six months. So that you can't argue with the success or with that enormous growth. And, and, and Eric, as you know, a million registered accounts. Yeah, a million accounts. And, and you know, this is one major league. We haven't really seen the official NFL product or the MLB product. I believe they have a relationship with UFC where they say that the, the NFTs are coming soon. But this is just we're just at the beginning and there's all this momentum. So I think it's exciting. I, I do wonder whether at some point there there becomes oversaturation or, or overhype. But for right now, I think there's a lot of growth ahead. And obviously, some prominent investors got into to the mix here, including some athletes like Michael Jordan and Kevin Durant and others. So this is this is definitely at the top of the list in terms of, of hot new products and opportunities in the market. Yeah. And, and again, like we sort of talked about in last week's episode in terms of sort of balancing that fandom versus a financial and sort of speculation opportunity, you know, there, the, a lot of the latter seems to be happening because I just... Um, heard a story recently that somebody was able to get one of these uh, NFTs for $9 and then was immediately able to flip it for 3500 I mean, just an amazing return in a very short period of time with, you know, no additional sort of work needed to be done here. So that sort of frothiness, I think, is going to fuel a lot of what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think the, the frothiness does get a certain type of person interested in the product. But I think over the long run, for these products to be successful, you really need both elements. You need the value proposition, but you also need the fan engagement piece. People have to enjoy interacting with these NFTs. They have to enjoy sharing them. They have to enjoy the the relationship that they have or they develop in a way with the athletes in a different context. So I think the fan engagement part of this will ultimately be as important as the monetary part. And that gets into the creativity. What are these NFTs? Are they video? Are they are they just artwork? Are they uh, other kinds of elements? What, what are the creative uh, thoughts that can be brought to the market? And uh, another big deal of the week, um, not so much of a fundraising, but uh, certainly a big acquisition piece that also really caught our eye. Uh, DraftKings, which obviously has just been rocking and rolling and, and uh, this year as the American sports betting market continues to expand, they've already raised their revenue projections for all of 2021. Stock is up considerably uh, so far this year, um, but they're now uh, buying the Vegas Sports Information Network. And this is the entity Best known, uh, their lead talent is the uh, famed American uh, broadcaster Brent Musburger. His nephew Brian is the chief executive of the company. And whereas, you know, we've talked about this in prior episodes, a lot of your traditional media companies have gotten heavy into betting content and they have various betting portals or betting channels or what have you. Vegas Sports Information Network, that's all they do. They're 24 7 betting content here. And for DraftKings, this really sort of uh, sort of leverages their existing sportsbook operations and sort of gives a real nice synergy with a content play here uh, with a pop uh, opportunity for user acquisition for both here. So it, it seems to be a fairly straightforward one plus one could equal not only three, but maybe 23 here uh, in terms of the kind of the general calculus. 
Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And first of all, kudos to Brent and Brian for starting this before PASPA was even overturned. Oh, yeah. So they were really ahead of Way out in front. They were out in front. And sometimes that pays off and sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes you're too early. But congratulations to those guys for for getting it to the finish line. I think for DraftKings and for really all the operators, they're trying to find ways to engage the fan beyond just that one bet and keep the fans in their ecosystem and, and continue to cross cross-pollinate and cross-promote. We talked a couple of weeks ago about some of the acquisitions that Bally's made. They bought Monkey Knife Fight. They bought a free-to-play game company, Sport Caller. So these betting companies are all trying in their own ways to broaden the relationship that they have with the consumer so they don't have to reacquire the consumer or re-motivate the consumer every time you know there is a bet to be made, but they're already hopefully in their ecosystem. Yeah. And this is for the DraftKings perspective. This is the kind of activity that we should should be expecting to see from them. And I would anticipate there's going to be a lot more of this coming um, that they already had, I believe, over a billion and a half dollars of free cash on their balance sheet. They're looking to raise over a billion more dollars. And so, you know, while they're still in this very early phase, they're, they're still losing money operationally. But again, they've raised their revenue target and it's, it's essentially a land grab right now since we're still so early in the maturation of the American market. So again, the playbook for them would seem to be a lot of these adjacent and complementary businesses. They're going to be picking up a lot of them where they can to build uh, a much broader enterprise. Yeah, I I th- I, th- I think that's right, and I think it's going to be really across the board. We're going to see more interest in betting companies looking at content companies. A lot of that has already happened. We've talked about it on the podcast, the Barstool deal, and 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 the other strategic alliances. The real question for betting operators sometimes when it comes to content is do they want to acquire or partner with a very focused business like Veasan, which has you know betters and people interested in betting information. Or and or do they want to buy and or create partnerships with broader sports information, news, feature sites that might have a bigger aggregate audience, but a less targeted audience and maybe a source of new bettors and, and early stage bettors. So, again, figuring out that formula of do I target the really avid hardcore better or do I target someone who may be a more casual better but may come into the, the marketplace and become a big better? Those are the things the, the betting operators are thinking about. Sure. So as we now move into April here, and obviously we're getting into some different seasons here and and, and playoff baseball has now started and uh, playoffs are coming up for the arena based leagues. But uh, uh, as you look ahead, what's catching your eye in the space? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, over the past week, Eric, you mentioned a bunch of, of capital raises, which we addressed a few of them, but there's, there's a couple of others that, that happened recently as well. Meadowlark, which uh, is John Skipper's content company, just raised uh, 12 plus million. Uh, Starstock, another company in the, in the digital collectible space, apparently just raised another round. And an interesting company out of Chicago, Cameo, uh, raised over a hundred million dollars and Cameo provides personalized greetings from entertainment and sports stars and and apparently they've they've really built a big business so interested to see how these companies that are now getting funded around a very buoyant uh, marketplace are going to progress over the next 12 to 18 months 
Sure. And from from my standpoint, we're deep in the uh, National Football League offseason, but uh, the league had their virtual uh, meetings this past week. And uh, one of the headlines was very much expected um, and has been you know, in the works for over a year in terms of formally moving to a 17-game regular season schedule. That is definitively now happening beginning with this upcoming 2021 season. But I was particularly interested in how they're thinking about their international opportunities. The, the labor deal is now done. Their domestic media rights, which we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they're now those renewals are now done. The 17-game regular season is now done. Um, so in terms of the future opportunities for the NFL, international is going to play a really big part of that. And, and what they've done is uh, the prior sort of more voluntary-based uh, system where teams would sort of raise their hand to give up a home game or multiple home games in the case of the Jacksonville Jaguars to play outside of uh, the United States, it's now going to be a rotational-based system where every one of the 32 teams are going to be playing somewhere outside of the United States at least once every eight years, and that's going to result in bigger high-profile teams and more attractive matchups being showcased in these emerging markets. And as the NFL increasingly thinks about themselves as a global business, just having better product on the field and better brands to showcase, it's going to be a really important tool. And obviously, you, you, you from your standpoint, having worked there, you saw this front and center here. But it, on, on one level, it's a fairly simplistic thing. But getting teams to sort of buy in, give up home games and, and sort of think about this in a whole new way. I, I think we could be looking back on this in a few years and it's like, oh, yeah, that was such a simple, obvious thing, but it paid huge dividends. Yeah, I, I, Eric, I agree. I think it's great to have that kind of commitment and buy-in. I think any league wants to put its best foot forward, put its strongest product uh, on the field. When I was at the NFL now, now a number of years ago, there was NFL Europe, which wasn't necessarily the best product no. uh, because you, you, you had teams that were just basically uh, trying to, uh, to help players get better and ultimately make it to an NFL team. But so now really having the best of the best in Europe, in London, wherever else they're going to be playing. I think that's very helpful, and I think that builds fandom in in, in an important way. Well, that's going to wrap things up for another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. And just as a disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. Thanks again for spending the time with us, and we'll see you again next week. Music